Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Nick Huzar. Nick is the CEO and co-founder of one of Seattle's most successful consumer startups, OfferUp. OfferUp was founded in 2011 by Nick following his experience starting two other companies, Connects and DealSpringer, and stints at Microsoft and T-Mobile. Eight years and 85 million downloads later, OfferUp is the largest mobile marketplace in the U.S. with a mission to build the largest, simplest, and most trustworthy local marketplace. In several major cities, including Seattle, more than 15% of the local population uses the app to buy and sell every month, and it's a top five shopping app in the App Store and Google Play. Nick is also a husband and father. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, okay, we're starting with a little rapid fire. Um, we were just talking about working out. So what's your favorite way to exercise? Well, I get bored pretty easily. So I think the more important thing for me is just consistency in doing something physical as much as I possibly can. So, you know, I mix it up any given day. I'll sometimes just go for a run. I'll I use jump ropes quite a bit, oh, uh, a, lot, a lot of weights. Um, and to be honest, some most days I don't even think about what I'm going to do until I kind of get to and, the gym. And you go to the gym to do it. Yeah, I go to the oh, gym. Awesome. Usually I live on, uh, on, a, on a mountain, so I, I, I walk, walk around there quite a bit. Um, but uh, I just try to do something physical um, for my own time, and, and I find that... You know, when I was younger, I probably did it more for our parents. Now I just do it because for my own sanity, really. Yeah, no, that totally yeah. makes sense. What was the first item you ever sold on OfferUp? Uh, first item I ever sold was probably um, kids' clothes. I had a, a young daughter and, you know, was selling you know, a bunch of her early baby That, that was stuff. what you put on there? Yeah. Um, if you could attend any concert and sit in the front row, which one would you choose? Uh, System of a Down. Oh, what? I like concerts that are physically engaging, uh, and so I think that one would be a, a workout. Like, that one would be intense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your best trait? Uh, I, don't know. I think it depends on who you ask. Well, uh, in your opinion, what do you like uh, most I would about say yourself? I'm pretty uh, determined and tenacious. Like, there's no quitting. Uh, so I think if you're an entrepreneur, success is not a straight line, and so I, you know, I, I tend to just pers- persevere. Nice. Um, okay, Nick, do you have any nicknames? I don't. You don't have any nicknames? I mean, yes. Can I call you Nicky? Uh, Nick Meister? Maybe my aunt calls me that. But, Nickster? You, know, you can ask around the office. Nobody's know, calling you a nickname. I don't think so. Maybe behind your back. Yeah, exactly. There's in <laughs> secret, maybe. <laughs> Not even your friends don't have a nickname. No. Oh, my gosh. Lucky no. you. I, I don't want to tell you mine. <laughs> okay, what is your biggest fear? Huh. I, um, you know, most days I wake up and I think about the end of my life and looking back and, and wanting, uh, you know, making sure I do the things I wanted to do, making sure I left it all out there on the field. I think that that's it. Like, I don't want to look back and felt like I have regrets. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. Um, is there a habit that you're currently trying to break? There's a balance of, you know, being a, a CEO and an entrepreneur of patience and pushing. And uh, I find I struggle with that a lot. Um, I'm pretty dang impatient. And sometimes you need to have patience. So um, I think there's a tension there, but I don't think you want, you don't want a CEO of a startup to be too patient. No, it almost seems like the opposite. And not that it would be complacency, but I get that. I'd rather work for somebody that's impatient because I'd be like, urgency is is important. Yeah. I, I, I tend to get feedback that that people want me to slow down, and usually mm. my response is, no, you need to speed up. So yeah. uh, <laughs> I think there's a tension there for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're we're done with our rapid fire. You did great. Great. I'm <laughs> people, sweating. i got to wipe the sweat off my brow. <laughs> <laughs> That's your workout for the day. Did you already work out today? I did. Oh, good for you. Lots oh, of jump rope. Nice. Jump rope's hard. How long do you go for? I usually do, I usually go into the racquetball uh, area and I do uh, five sets of like at least a minute each, and then I'll do push ups in between. I just go and back do you to listen back. to music? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, the whole yeah. Time. so the air pods, 
No, oh. I have the the bow is noise canceling. Yeah. Nice. A little bit better. Sound and what are you quality. listening to when you're working out? Uh, I don't know. I think I like a lot of house music, hip hop. You know, things that kind of get my my heart going. Nice. Yep. Love it. Okay, you're from Seattle, right? Yep. Born and raised. Born and raised. And tell me about your childhood. Yep. So I grew up in a suburb just south of Seattle, uh, Kent. Uh, my dad was an engineer at Boeing, so and, uh, most of the people I knew growing up had some affiliation with Boeing. There lots of my friends' parents that worked there. Um, and uh, I only moved once as a kid, and so I lived pretty much in that area the whole time. It sounds like a very stable, like kind of, um, not se- like 70s, 80s type of upbringing. Yep, yep. My, yeah, my dad only worked at one job, Boeing, for 45-plus years. Yeah. My mom was a, uh, actually a military brat. She traveled a lot, and I think she was probably tired of doing that. Um, and when I was... I don't know, middle school, she wanted to go back to school and became a, a family counselor. So oh, wow. um, I always say that I think what's, what's helped me, at least at this point in my career, is uh, having a dad that was an engineer and a mom that was a counselor. Because in any, any given day, I'm <laughs> dealing with uh, you know some of those Putting those out dynamics. fires. Yep. And, yeah. and so are you more like your mom or more like your dad? Definitely more like my mom. More like your mom. But I scratch my head a lot, and I love my dad to death, but... I don't see a lot of similarities at all between me and my dad. Yeah. Was there a part of him? I mean, we're going to get into your career because I know that you did kind of the big company thing after college and then went into the entrepreneurial thing. Um, but when you pursued um, your entrepreneurial endeavors, were your parents like, what are you thinking? You need the stable job? Not really. I think my parents always knew. I mean, I worked at a very young age. My parents, I think, instilled work ethic in me pretty early. Um, mm-hmm. Like I didn't have cable. I didn't have uh, a Nintendo. I didn't have any of those things that almost all my friends have. And when I really started pushing it, um, I remember when I first got my first Nintendo, the the first Nintendo. Um, I wanted it really bad. My mom would not buy it for me. And she goes, tell you what, if you work all summer, uh, I you, I will pay for half for your birthday, but you have to earn the other half. I love that. And so I started working at I feel like I was 12. I yeah. had to what be types doing of jobs? jobs? What types of uh, random well, jobs? Well, we had big yards. So, you know, I grew up with five acres and we moved to have an acre. And so we had a riding lawnmower. So I was mowing lawns at like 13. And it wasn't just my yard, my neighbor's yard. So I think most of the time I would be doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that helped me to just know that if I wanted something, I had to work for it. My parents weren't just going to give it to me. Yeah. Um, then I actually did carpet cleaning, which is a disgusting job. Yeah. Uh, but again, you, you, you learn a lot about just hard work and what it actually takes to do that kind of work. I ask friends this, do you ever feel conflicted as a dad now? Like you're going to raise your kids in a different socioeconomic um, environment, I guess, than you were raised in. How do you create that grit in them? Yeah. And so I think about this a lot. I have a eight-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. And it's anyway. a lot harder because, you know, we don't have... As a kid, I used to have to work in our yard all the time. We don't, my kids don't have to do that. And so, um, you know, what we do is create tasks for them already, even a few years ago, where they have to go out and like pick up after our dog in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And they were like, Dad, I'm not doing this. I'm like, Well, yes, you are. Yeah. And tell you what, I'll, I'll pay you to do it. And so I think, you know, we tried to really instill in them, like, you know, why do you work for things? And what does that mean? What is the value of things? So they understand that everything isn't free. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the difference between a need and a want? And I think that was something that my daughter stood, is starting to really understand, which is great because she says, oh, you know, I have you know, $100 and then she wants to go buy something. And I say, okay, well, what's the cost of that? Do you really, do you want that or do you need that? Yeah. And so. You'll you know, start I, to I, see she'll spend, she'll want to spend your money and not hers. So yeah. That's what my um, son's like. I want it. I'm like, spend your own money then. He's that's like, right. yeah, no, that's okay. I'm like, you obviously don't want it that bad. Yeah. So I, I think that. I'm trying to, even at this age, trying to kind of just get them, I try to make it playful and kind of a learning exercise. I don't take it, you know, overly seriously, but I want them to start to understand what things cost. So Mm -hmm. we'll go on a family vacation or we'll do things and I'll I'll tell them what it costs so they actually can understand. Do you tell them things like how much the actual vacation costs, like real money thing? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we went to Disney. Yeah. We went on a Disney cruise a few years ago and I told them like, they're not, they're not cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And, um. You know, because I, I want them to understand those things, I think. The value of the dollar. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes when I talk to people that think of their childhood and think, you know, I was the kid who didn't have X, Y, Z that my friends had, um, it can almost be something that fuels them. Like, I am I will be that kid or I never want to want for anything. Was that something that you were fueled by? 
I think for me, it's more, I don't feel like there's this ladder that I need to climb. I, I like to build things. I just, that's, I'm pretty creative. So I like, I see things and, and I, I see solutions to problems. And like, I think that's more important to me and, and that motivates me. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you do in school? Were you a good student? No. I, I mean, you ask most CEOs, I don't think most of them are good students. So I, I think what don't listen to this, Max. Yeah. <laughs> this to my son. He's always like, I don't need to learn this. I just uh, need to learn the basics. I think you learn uh, failure. You you accept failure as a part of life and how to learn from it. And that's definitely me. I got in a lot of trouble as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if things were bored to me, I just turned them off. And uh, that was challenging. If I was, but I, you know, I in high school, I took a bunch of business classes. I'm like, I really like this mm-hmm. stuff. And what so, kind of stuff was your, like, my son is not feeling chemistry. And he's like, I, I'll never use this again, mom. And I'm trying to figure out life uh, lessons here. And I'm kind of like, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Because I'm not using yeah, it. Yeah, history, things like that. Like, you know, I love biographies now. I love to learn about, like, especially entrepreneurs and what what actually built America. I think that's mm-hmm. all very fascinating. But a, a lot of things, I'm like, why, why do I need to know this? Right. So it's kind of, I always need things that are applied that I can understand. And, you know, and if it's just kind of theory or, um, you know, I, I, I tend to get really bored. So yeah. I think that, you know, learning from failure and, and not looking at it as an absolute, like, oh, this is the end. No, I just learned how to overcome that mistake. And so yeah. That's a challenge. Like I have two different kids. My my daughter is very much like my wife. Uh, never wants to fail. My wife is probably a 4.0 student, you know, forever. Uh, so her first response to anything is no. And yeah. uh, then I usually come back, you know, uh, like an hour or two or later. What do you think? And then she's like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and she's starting to think about it differently. Um, my son was more like me. And so it's, it's tough as a parent because I'm trying to think, how would you parent me? Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't have a good answer. I to wonder that. how um, your personality type, based on how you're describing yourself, would do in today's era, like with the instant gratification and the quick knowledge and the ability to, um, you could really start a company so easily now, right? Mm-hmm. The technology and all the tools are there and there's like not really the barrier to entry that there used to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it'd be interesting to see how much sooner you would have been a technology entrepreneur, you know, maybe instead of... Um, mowing lawns. I don't know. It'd be interesting. Yeah. I, I think if there was the ability to to have those tools, if I knew how to code back then, you know, I, yeah. I mean, I-, I, I Are could, you going to want your kids to learn that stuff? Or are they not kind of inclined in that way? Uh, well, we're. I believe one of the biggest challenges, especially in the U.S. and the things we need to be- We need to be ter- teaching- Development and coding in, in, in as as a basic necessity in elementary school. I completely. I think agree. I think you want to talk about how we make put America on the map and make sure we are, um, you know, not failing, uh, not failing. Yeah, that is it. And you start there. And like I think that's the issue is everyone's talking about all these other things that can help impact America, but we should be teaching kids how to code just like we teach them basic math. I completely agree. And so um, we've put my daughter especially in some code classes just Mm -hmm. because I think that that's where it starts. I think by the time you're older, it's a little too late. Yeah. Um, We we did it and my kids were like, eh, but I feel like they're going to be left behind in a weird way if I don't get on them about it. Anyway, um, so did you have any teachers growing up that impacted you either negatively or positively, like told you... Uh, you're not this or you are that? Um, I'm trying to think of teachers that I love. I mean, definitely in college, I had a lot more professors that I I really appreciated. As a kid, like I said, it was probably more negative, probably Mm -hmm. more of people telling me or telling my mom, especially, hey, he's not paying attention. He's, you know, he's kind of checked out. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is is, is, does he have ADD? And my my mom, you know, given her profession, I think she realized that, uh, that it, it wasn't that it was just I was bored and that was the truth I yeah. was and yeah. so that was I think that that's a big challenge for me is when I'm bored you you know it you know it yeah. you kind of <laughs> check out and how um how would you describe your family values and how have those shaped you as a person and as a leader um you know I I definitely am, I'm a big believer in, in integrity like my word is everything and so if I say something it's, it's done like and so I think that is a, a big one, and that's one I feel like if if you know I'm working with somebody and they don't have that, that just that's that's a big kind of deal killer for me. Um, 
It sounds like work ethic, big one. Yeah, work ethic and drive. I, I, I really, you know, I think my wife is like that. We're a pretty good team. We're different ways, but we're very focused on our family and our kids and just making sure they have as much they can grow. You know, having a growth mindset, like mm-hmm. especially at this age, having young kids, is we want to give them everything. Like my yeah. daughters and my daughter and son are doing chess. Uh, my daughter is in cheerleading. Uh, she's she takes uh, art class once a week. Yeah. So we just try to give them exposed to a bunch of things, knowing yeah. that at the end they may not gravitate towards. And a lot it's of such it. a gift. Like sometimes when my you know you realize that these days kids are so stressed out and they're so anxious, and some are completely overprogrammed. But if there's not that pressure associated with it, and it's just with the intent of exposure. It's like this. What a gift! Like if I wasn't working right now, I feel like I'd be taking so many classes. Just yeah. I'm in that mindset of like life is short. Let's, you know, let's um, take it all in. I've always had a dream of just sitting in in uh, lectures. Like I'm a coog, but I would I would. Easily, I'm a dog, so that's okay. My wife's a dog too, so yeah. that's fine. I've always had a fantasy of just sitting in a class and just sitting there. No one would know I was there. I'd just yeah. go in there and learn for a day. Why don't you go there instead and teach in the entrepreneurship program, which is. Um, a lot of tech entrepreneurs that you know are in that program teaching, yep. and you would be such a gift, especially because that would be like, ha-ha, Cougs, look who we got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've actually spoken a few times there, um, I think, in terms of full-on teaching. I don't have enough hours in yeah. a day to commit to that, but you know, at some point, I would definitely love to pay it forward. We're still on the childhood thing, because I'm just super fascinated by this. Um, what What was your kind of idea of success when you were a child, or do you remember? <sighs> Um, was it stability? Like, did you look at your dad and go, wow, look no. at that stable? I want to do, you know, I, th- I, th- I think it's, it's, I think it's probably most kids, you always want to live a better life than your parents. And so I, I lived a really, you know, fairly privileged life. My, my mom was really into me. My, I did a lot of different things. I took private art class pretty much almost my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you still doing any art on the side? As a way uh, well, kinda... I think that, well, Product design. When I started Offer Up, I mean, I designed it, um, the whole app, the name, the logo, all that. Um, now we have an amazing design team uh, that just definitely take it to you know a whole nother level. But um, you know, so I, I I miss some of of the pixels, but I still am pretty engaged on that level. And uh, you know, I think the the art of building a company is a pretty creative process there. So yeah, yeah. And so. Um... Do you have any memories that are relevant as far as um, who you have become as a person of your grandparents, your ancestry? Are you attached to that in any way? No. I actually have an extremely small family. Yeah. Um, you know, I um, I have a sister and I, um, are you I the have a few oldest? cousins. I'm the oldest, yeah. yeah. And I have a few cousins that I don't really chat with and that's it. I yeah. don't really have an extended family. Luckily, my wife has a, she's Vietnamese and she has a large family. Yeah. Uh, so I spent a lot more time hanging out with, with them, but I have a, a really small family. Yeah. It's interesting when, um, I'm, I'm always really fascinated by culture in general. And my husband and I are, we're both Jewish, but he's Persian Jewish. And that's just like almost a different culture. And the, the Vietnamese culture is really strong. Mm-hmm. Have you been um, able to incorporate some of her traditions or her family traditions into your home? Yeah, so I think the, uh, you know, I, I, what I've observed, you know, spending time with my wife and their families, they're very big. In, like, food is a big thing. Oh, yeah, everything's centered fam- around yeah. food. So my wife is an amazing cook, uh, and I am not. I am dreadful. You get to dreadful. eat it. And yeah. it's also healthy. Like, that'll keep you in oh, good yeah. shape, right? So, exactly. So I eat... Uh, like it, it, I'm I'm blown away all the time. My wife will just whip something up, and it's really, really good. So we'll go out to eat, and it's kind of like, yeah, I get this, you know, every night. So I think that's, I've, I'm very spoiled, and I know that. Um, so that's a big part of our house is we're always, I always try to get home for dinner yeah. most of the time when I can. Um, she mostly makes traditional food, but her like what? Her, like her, what's her favorite? So anything spaghetti like oh traditional American yeah American food. American food. oh I thought now, you were talking about Vietnamese no, her, food I'm but like, her mom that... does her mom oh. makes all tra- I'll go over there and I'm eating like very authentic Vietnamese foods so. and that's super I feel like that's super healthy right yeah oh yeah and so how did you meet your wife uh, so I used to work at T-Mobile and um, there was a uh, coworker of mine who literally sat right next to me and she was having a holiday party and she said you should come. And I, you know, I'm in my twenties, and I and I said, "Well, are there going to be girls there?" And she's like, "Oh yeah." I'm <laughs> and like, are well, they going to be hot? <laughs> well, I asked, "Let me see some pictures." And oh, then I, I, I actually saw her in a picture. I said, "Okay, yeah, I want to come." Oh, so, that's awesome. 
that was one of the benefits of working at T-Mobile is that's how I ended up connecting with yeah. my, my wife. We went to a holiday party and you know met her there. Next thing you know, boom. Yep. Um, and so I know you went to Wazoo. How did you choose to go to Wazoo? So I think a few things. I think growing up, I just wanted to get away. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to really get far away from where I grew up. And like I said, I had a great childhood, but I just... I was just on a different path, I think, than most of my friends. Most mm-hmm. of my friends didn't go to a, a college. Um, and so uh, I didn't really have plans on going there. I looked at a handful of schools. Um, and then ultimately, I had a girlfriend in high school, and she was like, oh, we should go check out Wazoo. So it was it was nothing more than that. And I just thought it was a beautiful place, and I connected with people. Like on this one weekend, we went there, and um, I really just enjoyed, I think, just the kind of camaraderie and just the – the people there. Mm-hmm. And you studied management information systems. What is that? Yeah. Uh, it's basically a business degree. Think of it like a business degree with a minor in computer science. So you have to do, well, um, you know, a lot of development, database design. Like, Did you enjoy that? It. Or how did I you have it. the foresight to even know that that it. was? Um, you know, I had just, you know, keep in mind that when I started college, I got my first email address. This is where we no, were. No, I get it. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the time <laughs> in history. And so I kind of saw the internet kind of like, this is fascinating. But that is like, that is real insight because yep. I um, did and didn't. I mean, I did and kind of realized it was a thing. But I look back, I'm like, why did, even just registering URL names, like, why didn't we just take them all? Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. And so I just, I just felt like it was coming and it was big. And, you know, when I joined, um, when I first started going to college, it wasn't the biggest degree, I think, in, in, in the whole um, in business program. By the time I graduated, it was. So it really uh, ballooned and became pretty significant. But yeah. uh, I feel pretty fortunate. I use most of the things I learned. I think a lot of people, clearly, you get a degree and you're like, oh, yeah, you have to no. use 10% of it. I've had to use pretty much all of it. And, That's great. And I think a lot of it clicked for me once I got out of college and started kind of building companies. I, I started to apply everything. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. accounting. Like, I, I need that. Um, you know, I need to understand how to, the, all these these different things work. Yeah. And how did you um, end up, like, did you do the kind of recruiting thing out of college that people do? Or how did you end up getting your first job? Uh, so I was in a fraternity, and there was a guy, um, a guy there that started a company doing um, web development. And mm. so keep keep in mind the time in history we're at. Most people, one, they didn't know if they needed a website. Two, we were doing a lot of database-driven websites, and people are like, why do I need a database? Like, th- this, this is kind of the time in history. Now... Um, so I graduated, and a lot of people were going to work at consulting companies like Cambridge mm-hmm. at the time, Anderson, and they were making, I want to say, like 50000 a year. I went and worked for this 26-person startup in Tacoma, mm. Washington. Tacoma Aroma. Yeah, Tacoma Aroma, making 27000 a year. Yeah. Uh, I could barely pay rent. Did um, you live in Tacoma? I lived in Federal Way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, th- that was right out of college. So Is that your WebEx experience? Yeah, that was Web-X, okay. not web X. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I say, as what feedback I give to people that are graduating, don't follow the money right away. Get experience. Join a small company because I'm very confident I wouldn't be here today if I didn't work at this company. What and did you learn? Like, why? Because at a small company that size, you, you're forced to try everything. You're forced yeah. to figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at. And so... I figured out really early, I was managing like these large projects. Like we rolled out um, a ticketing system for Paramount Parks. And so Paramount has all these theme parks. Um, They had no online ability to buy a ticket at the time. So I had to figure all that out. I had to go present to these execs at this company. I had to manage this project um, across multiple parks and and make it all work. Um, I had to lead teams inside. I sat next to a woman who taught me how to code. And so I would learn how to code like during my time there. And then probably because I took art class my whole life, I was pretty good at kind of designing things. So I self-taught myself Photoshop. So, you know, within like a year and a half of working there, I knew I could lead projects. I knew I could actually code. I knew I could design. Wow, like I could, great for your confidence. Yeah, so I'm like, man, I can build a lot. I'm just, I'm not a hardcore engineer on the back end, but I can do a lot of this, you know, yeah. and understand how the, all the parts fit. So, um, you know, I, th- I very much believe that, Yes, it sucked at the time because I was making half of what all my friends were making. Um, but um, I think I, I, I was exposed but to those, so much. Are, yeah, the, think of those people now, your friends, right? They've got like exponentially that 2 to 3% increase year over year. That's right. So where are they now versus like the confidence that you got? I love that. I never really thought about it in those terms and um, I like it. That's why I tell people 
I think when they graduate, you know, we, we have a lot of interns that come through and whatnot. And I say, like, go work at a small company. Like, yeah. you can always go to the big company. But oh, the totally. problem with the big company is you are not going to be stretched. You're going to be, you know, put in the box. Yeah. And you're well, like, it's also you know, like as a recruiter, I can say that a lot of our clients who are startups don't really love people out of big companies because it sometimes they're just too much in the box. And like, I need you to be kind of a Swiss Army knife. I don't just need this one thing. Yeah. We have to be able to go deep and wide. Yeah, yeah. We call it kind of the startup stomach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of our core values at OfferUp is, you know, adaptability. And I mm-hmm. think in a big company, you know, when you're in a small company, it's all kind of chaotic and you're trying to get things to normalize and kind of on a healthy kind of path. Um, I just think in a big company, um, a lot of the hard problems have been figured out. Yeah, you can. There's still right. plenty of other things that need to be done, but when you're much smaller, just a lot more kind of ambiguity. Yeah, it's so. also hard. I think a little bit in those bigger companies to to really innovate and to um, to fail, to let yourself fail, because you've got these like layers of bosses. And I've never worked in a big company. Actually, it's just not for me. Mm-hmm. I already know that about myself. <laughs> like yeah. I can't do that in the box. Kind of that's how we're supposed to work things. Um, Web Dash X sounds like it was a really good experience. How come you left there? Um, so you know, it was early. It was dot com crazy days, mm. and so they had a hard time kind of scaling that business. Um, so I was there for a year or two. The whole dot com bubble happened, yes. and you just didn't need that as much. There's a lot of other tools and stuff. So that company, like, I think a lot of those. There was multiple web development companies back then. I mm-hmm. think that that kind of whole kind of model eventually morphed and evolved. And so I moved on from there. Yeah. And so you did the, you did that, you did the Microsoft thing. And then I was surprised to see T-Mobile. I don't know why. I've never really even walked in the doors there. Um, We're we're talking to them about doing some work together, but I have this impression that it's like super corporate, also very cool company. Um, What was your experience like there? And what did you think of the culture? Yeah. So I think, you know, if you look at the wireless industry, I think you have to think about like okay, what 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 do you what is the asset there? It is it is it is spectrum. It is it is uh, waves, right? It is is the infrastructure in which it lives on. So, unfortunately, that means in the walls of a company like that, just not a lot of innovation. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of yeah. excitement. Yeah. And so, you know, at the time, to be honest, I just needed a job, and I had a friend that had worked there. And what I was interested in, it was back when they were voice stream, and they needed to, they were morphing into T-Mobile, so they mm-hmm. were building out the whole. Um, the whole basically web team from the ground up. They had like a five-person web team. So I was like, this could be a really exciting opportunity to kind of go and kind of build this this whole new you know website and infrastructure from the ground up. So that that part I thought was you know interesting. Um, so I you know I did that for a, a while. I think the you know to be honest, I think again going back to early companies versus big companies, like I didn't learn a ton mm-hmm. in my time at T Mobile. Yeah. All. And did you have um, that entrepreneurial itch that whole time? Constantly, yeah. Constantly. And so, you know, I already had that even before T Mobile, but you know, I, I I would jam out of work all the time. I would go I would go work at coffee shops on my own little startup and it was it was one of those where I did not uh give them a hundred percent of me. I knew what my task was and what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um but to be honest, like I was like, oh, I think there's better things. They can yeah. fire me tomorrow. Like, were you the kind yeah. of person who would walk in or who would just be um, finding holes in businesses and being, oh, there's an opportunity? Yeah. Or were you just like creatively thinking of these new ideas that had never been done before? Yeah. So I, again, going back to even my childhood here, this was this was a delicate balance where I would come in and there was so much opportunity, and I'm like, how do I kind of surface these things? Um, so a, a good example would be. Um, you know, we had 18,000 customer care reps when I was there, and I was responsible for ma- managing customer care on the web. How big do you think the customer care on the web team was? It was me. Oh, jeez. And so I'm here, and I'm like, well, can you tell me the top 10 reasons people are contacting us? Why don't we find ways to, for them to self-serve? What a what an amazing off-the-wall concept, right? Yeah. Um, two years had gone by, and we I would, I would go up, you know, meet with execs at the time, and I would uh. say, like, this is not that hard. Let's figure out a way to get calls out of the call center. And at the time, they had really bad customer service, so what did they do? They hired more people so they could respond faster. Yeah, I, and so, I, that would, based on what I know of you, make you crazy, It was, right? making, it was yeah. making me nuts. And, yeah. and, and I'd even had a boss at the time that said, Nick, you need to just calm down and be more quiet in the yeah. meetings. Yeah, good luck. And, <laughs> So that's that's a challenge I have where, again, I'm not trying to be overly aggressive, but I, when I see opportunities that I think make yeah. sense, um, 
I think that's hard in the big, in bigger environments. Yeah, and right? it's hard if you feel like it's like soul crushing if you're passionate and driven. Yeah. Um, so tell me about Connects and Dealspringer, two startups. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I started Connects. Um, so so rewinding the tape. So back in the dot com era when I was working at WebEx, I started doing these big networking events. So we're doing one in Bellevue, one in Tacoma, and we put like we get like two hundred people together every month and do these events. So I did probably 30 of these over a few years. And it was kind of an accident. I had a guy that I had worked with at T-Mobile and he said, hey, why don't we just you know spend $600 and get one of these going? And then before you knew it, you know, be- because of the um, the environment we were in, Cisco and Sun were giving us like $10,000 to sponsor these events every month. Oh, that's awesome. We're like, oh, this is great. And yeah. so for a while, that was interesting because uh, we were making pretty much as much money as we were in our day jobs, kind of just doing these tech events. Yeah. Um, I think the other learning from that was it forced me to get in front of people a lot. And so I feel pretty comfortable being in front of a crowd. So it kind of it was a learning you know, from that experience. But um, I, I think through that, I realized that like networking is really inefficient. Like uh, and, and so, you know, you're, you're meeting all these different people. It's like kind of like dating. And you're like, well, where do these opportunities kind of exist? And at the time there was no concept of social media. Like, we were mm-hmm. way early. Yeah. and Because um, this was 2006. Yeah. Yeah. And we we kept thinking, man, why are there, like, thousands of dating sites? Like, underneath the hood, they're all the same. Yeah. And so we said, well, what if you could build a platform that would connect people kind of online? And that was Connect. So um, you know, the challenge in that business, and when I look back on it, I think that you, I learned of what a lot of what not to do, which has helped immensely, I think, in, in building OfferUp. It's not to say we don't, you know, I don't make mistakes, but hopefully far less. Um, but there, I think, you know, we, you know, a lot of startups is timing. We were very early. Mm-hmm. And back, you know, I was working at T-Mobile and at night I just code all night long. I would come home, I'd code all night long. i code all weekend long. Right? And I was building out what was going to be uh, Connects. Uh, we had a team in India, so I second mortgaged my condo. I used wow. to live over here on Westlake. And um, I had a team in India that would work. While I was at work during the day at T-Mobile, and then I'd pick up at night, and we just kind of did that for and a while. And what about your—you had a co-founder. Yep. And my co-founder was helping to you know, connect with investors, and so that that was helpful. So at some point, kind of, you know, everything kind of came together, and we started raising money, and I just quit working at T-Mobile. Um, but our vision was, hey, we can all connect online. We had—again, we were very early. Like, so we started before Friendster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was early on social media because I've been recruiting for 25 years. So I remember being on Friendster. I'm, I'm number 40,000 something on LinkedIn, which okay. is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like, what was the difference at the time between LinkedIn, Friendster, Facebook? They're all kind of blended together. Yeah. What was the other one? MySpace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what ultimately happened with that business? Yeah. So, you know, we went and I, I, like, I like to say that the challenge with that business was we spent most of our time fundraising, not building a company. Mm. Uh, we had 56 angel investors. Uh, it was, it was painful. And, uh, so, you know, ultimately I think, you know, we hired, uh, we hired, we had an office in Tacoma. We hired a bunch of people. Um, uh, I had moved on and my co-founder and a big investor were running it for a while. We, we tried to create it more of a SaaS product actually for newspapers because oh. ultimately we realized like, Hey, we are not going to compete with the Facebooks of the world and, and others, but can we, can we take, uh, this, this older, you know, can we take, um, you know, newspapers and media sites that are kind of not engaging and can we bring engagement in, into them? And we did a bunch of tests with various newspapers and it was great. We saw a massive increase in just kind of how people engage with it. The challenge clearly is that's just, you know, an industry that is slow to move. Yeah. And so I, I ultimately, I think I went to a convention once and I met with a guy that was running like 600 newspapers and he told me that social media was a fad. Mm-hmm. And I think on that flight home, I emailed my co-founder, I said, I think it's I, it's it's time for me to move on. Yeah, yeah. and Deal Springer was something you started. Yeah, so, so so to be clear, Deal Springer. Think of Deal Springer as simply the V one of OfferUp. Oh, okay, got so it. So when we started, that know, was just the original name and the original. Well, because like when you when you had the concept was always, why is value sitting all around us? Why is it in our homes? Why is it in businesses? Why is it in storage units? So it just it's sitting there and it's getting it's it's bigger and bigger and bigger. It's not getting smaller. And my belief was. We all make time value decisions, but, um, and so stuff is just sitting like it's, we can get into some numbers here in a minute, but, um, so our thought was how do we unlock all this value? And so we started with a B2C model because we thought that if we could get merchants on the platform, we'd have just a ton of local content and that would bring consumers. 
the challenge we had was, you know, going that route to start was we also entered into this space uh, when Groupon was at its height. Mm. So everyone th- heard the name Deal, and everyone thought, oh, this is Daily Deals. And I'm like, no. Yeah. You're enabled to just take a picture from your phone, mm. and that sales rack, you know, Mr. Merchant, uh, you can now promote to the local community. So, um, you know, ultimately we pivoted back to the original idea of getting into consumers' pockets with OfferUp. But, um, you know, think of, think of Dill Springer as kind of the V1 of what ultimately became OfferUp. Yeah. Got it. Um, you said let's get into some of the numbers. I, um, in starting to do some research, have looked at some numbers that are just profound about OfferUp. I know you started it officially in 2011, and then I also read that you have a co-founder, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that co-founder still? Uh, he's an advisor to the business now, okay. but I've known him for a long time, even back at uh, Connects. And when you were starting it, were you clear on what lane you belonged in? Because it sounds like um, you weren't doing the fundraising at the other company and you're well-rounded, it sounds like. I'm creative. I can do product. I can get in front of people. You're not really back office. Per- you're kind of everything. How did you decide that you were going to be CEO, and what was your understanding of your role then, and how is it different now? Yeah, so what I am not uh, – what, what I would say is not my strength is, um, like, I'm not a hardcore engineer. And that's where I think if you're starting a company, like, I was blessed to have a co-founder that, that was very good at figuring out – you know, all these various aspects of setting up AWS and, you know, in, in the summer he built out the Android app. Mm-hmm. Like he he can just go into things and figure out those things. And I think, um, you know, that was a huge benefit because I was, uh, you know, it's a yin-yang scenario here. So our first year, I literally... Yeah, I sat there and grew out the, the biggest beard you'd ever seen. <laughs> I did just coded in my pajamas like every single day. And my co-founder did the same. And every now and then, because, you know, it was pretty isolating, we'd say, hey, let's go grab coffee. Mm-hmm. Let's get out of the house. Yeah. But in year one, uh, we could build, uh, we built a website. Uh, we built an iOS app just between he and I. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it was anything to write home about, but it was functional. Yeah. And so, yeah. And for those who, I mean, I said it in the intro, but for those listening who randomly, I've done some analytics on this podcast and there's people listening from all over the world, which I don't know how they even find it, but um, what is OfferUp exactly and um, what's the business model? How do you make money? Yeah. So, you know, our view for OfferUp is to be uh, the largest local um, mobile marketplace. And so, you know, our view and the problem we're solving, to be clear, is way bigger than classifieds. And I, I get it. I think a lot of people, if they think about OfferUp, they think of it as a kind of mobile classified business. But that's very kind of short-sighted. Think think of this as a bus stop along the way to a bigger vision, which is, you know, why is value sitting everywhere? Like you know, before we walked in here today, we walked by a, a whole bunch of stores. No one knows what's in those stores. Um, so how do we help those stores to at least make those things visible so people can decide? Do I want to, if I'm looking for a bike, do I want to get it from somebody down the street? Or maybe I want to get it from that bike shop we, we, we walked in uh, past when we came in. Um, <clears throat> so... You know, I, I think there's just a, still a huge opportunity with local. And I think that, you know, there's just, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to go miss because it's not worth people's time. And I was, that was exactly my scenario when I started Offer Up. I had a room full of stuff. My, I had a wife uh, with a daughter or daughter on the way. And I wanted Nobody to, wanted to deal. And, and I'm standing there in the doorway thinking, kill me. How am I going to sell all this stuff? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were given the gift of a smartphone, which enabled us to reimagine the entire local buying and selling experience. So for me, I just wanted to take pictures and in like 30 seconds make them visible. Um, at the time, the only alternative was 15 minutes on a desktop platform, right? That's slow. And that's the, and so I was. Are you, you mean like Craigslist? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that today, that's still the case mm-hmm. uh, with that. I'm like you, like I can't deal. And so. I just want to like put it out in my front door, just let somebody take it. And if we make some money, great. If we don't, great. I yep. just need it out of my face. Yep. Um, but sometimes I wouldn't want like my kids to have some stranger come. And I know that safety is a big priority for your company. How? How do you do that? Yeah. So, I mean, we built the whole company around two core pillars. One was simplicity and the other one was trust and safety. And I think um, both matter. And when I think of simplicity, it's it's time. You know, so taking a picture is one thing, but what about using maps and chat? Like if you add it all up, we're saving people a tremendous amount of time, again, because of um, uh, the smartphone. And so, 
that's a very core part of it. The the second part is trust because you're bringing, you know, we're bringing millions of people together every single month. And at this point, we're bigger than any large city in the U.S. Um, So, you know, when you think about, you know, issues that could arise, like it's never going to be zero. Um, But we want to feel like we're equipping buyers and sellers with as many tools to make an informed decision so they can then decide who they want to meet with. And so, you know, we do very basic things like, you you know, you have a profile, you have ratings at the end of transactions. Did you show up on time? Were you trustworthy? Were you communicative? Um, we go even further than that. Um, even before we raised outside funding, we built a program called TrueU, which um, is a two-step process where we ask people to verify uh, their ID. And then the second step is it takes a selfie. And we, add, we do some image recognition to make sure it's a facial match. If it is, you get this special badge on your profile. So oh, that's great. Member. And, and, and to be clear, we did it at the time. I think the company we used to help us do that was doing ID scans for casinos and like real estate. And we said, has anyone ever done this on a phone? And I said, not that we're aware of. And so I think we were the first company to ever do this. Um, and we knew, again, because we were so small that most people wouldn't do it. But we wanted to stand behind trust. We, mm-hmm. we knew this was such an important thing. So over time, now we have a lot more people that are doing it. Um, but I think that was an important step. We also um, have rolled out, uh, let's see, over 2,000 community meetup spots around the U.S. And um, so if you're chatting back and forth uh, over an item, uh, we recommend these vetted places to meet. And if you go to those, you'll see a big offer up green dot on the ground. Mm. And um, and so, you know, we partner with retail stores, even some you know police stations. And so not only does it help buyers and sellers save time and figure out where to meet, um, but we also have a vetted, trusted location with a mm-hmm. camera and has to be well lit. And, and, so, and yeah. tell me about the payment process and efficiencies and inefficiencies with that. Yeah, so so payments, I think, in the U.S. overall is a, is a frustrating uh, place at, at the moment, in my view. Uh, if you look around the rest of the world, it's going, it's just leaps and bounds, uh, you know, much further evolved than where we are. Um, you know, so we offer um, kind of two kinds of payments. One is shipping, so you don't have to get in the car. And so if you, we still run into a number of people that say, "I just want don't even want to meet anyone." And so uh, we enabled shipping a little over a year ago. And the benefit of that is you you know you don't have to drive across town if you don't want to. You mm-hmm. just put something in the mail and it comes to you. Uh, we also have in-person payments, so you can simply walk up and scan a QR code and pay the other person. Um, but what's um, what's facilitating that on the back end? Uh, Stripe. We've Stripe. leveraged Stripe to do that. Okay. Um, so that's very new. There's a lot more. So to nothing be with out Venmo there. or PayPal or today we offer credit card, um, you know, Apple Pay, Google Wallet. Um, yeah. And what about um, your plans for international expansion? So today we're, we're very much focused on the U.S. We think there's still a lot of growth opportunities here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned, um, we're continuing to just evolve our product and, and get deeper into some of these markets. Um, so I think there's international opportunities are interesting, but I think the U.S. is, at least in the near term, definitely going to be the, the focus. Yeah. And what are you, um, I guess, most proud of? You've got, I mean, a list of ridiculous amounts of um, awards and recognition and the unicorn coming out of Seattle. What are you personally most proud of as far as um, what you've built? I think there's uh, probably two things. So I think the impact we're having on people's lives, um, I love the stories. I mean, we went and just did a... Give me a couple. I love these stories too. Yeah. So this is a random one. We literally just had uh, an exact offsite because we're doing our 2020 planning right now, uh, um, two days ago. And there's a, uh, I'll give a plug for this uh, shop in uh, Soto here called Lawless Forge. I don't know if you've heard of this. You can, we went and built knives. And you can build swords in there. I'm talking Wait, like Wait, you did this as your, out, as your outing? Yeah. Oh, we, we love this kind account. of stuff. I'll go do it. Oh, it's, it was so fun. Yeah. So we go in there and we're, you know, it's like six of us and we're getting ready to do this. And and the guy's just raving about OfferUp. He's like, most of the shop was all purchased from OfferUp. Oh, so cool. And I'm like, wow. And so, you know, you look at the, the numbers, which are exciting, but then you meet somebody and you're in their environment and they're touring you yeah. around for all these. And he just has stories the whole time. So we're there for three hours. It was it was a mutual uh, exchange of information where he was asking a lot about offer up and he just kept telling me stories of the those things that he he's that's got to make you feel good. You're like, look at all these people I'm impacting or what I this idea and like 
you yeah. know, working I, in your pajamas, and I, here you are. Yeah, I think that's the thing, because early on, like, it, it took years before it really got momentum. Now I love, you know, I, I wear a lot of off-rep gear, so I love just walking around, you know, on a, in an airport or at a coffee shop. And it's, people stop you? Uh, uh, yeah, m- most of the time. Wow. Yeah, if you look at Seattle, almost, I'd say 20% of the adult population in Seattle uses off-rep every month, so the probability of running into somebody that's probably using it at the and moment do you feel, is very high. Um, do you feel proud to say, like, I'm the CEO, or do you feel like um, you want to be kind of more... Yeah, I, I usually I usually just say I work, I work in product. There. I work in product. That's I work what in I product. You're yeah. like I'm humble. I work in product. Yeah. So I'm also blown away. Um, if this number is correct, 261 million in funding. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And what has that process been like for you? Do you well, enjoy it? Fundraising is never easy. I don't think anyone would say they enjoy fundraising. But are you? Um, yeah, I, I tend to ask it because I'm just curious because some personalities seem like they'd be better at it or kind of have more fun doing it because it's storytelling and it's um, selling. I, I like the process of presenting the opportunity and offer up. I definitely do. But I, th- I don't think anyone loves fundraising. Like yeah. it is a it is a grind. It's a lot of work. I mean, I feel very blessed if you look at our list of investors to have yeah, that list. Like, um, And I have nothing but the, the huge respect for them. And to have them involved with their insights is is has been great, but yeah. Um, but but fundraising is hard. It took us two years to raise our Series A. Uh, we two were hand to mouth feeding for two years, and luckily we were persistent and we stuck with it. And and timing worked out. But uh, that was a uh, that was rough. Yeah, and you had people. It sounds like well, a wife and employees. And my daughter. Keep in mind, I just had a daughter who stuck by you and who you know believed in you, and that's got to also feel good. Just yeah, like my, that. Yeah, I, I think that's the other thing I'd say about being an entrepreneur is you have to have a supportive, significant other because there was many a days where she was like, hey, when are you going to start paying yourself a decent wage here? Yeah. And so I'd, we'd have conversations like, hey, do you want me to quit? And she's like, oh, no, keep going. Right. So that's that's always one. I think you go into it thinking, oh, by this time, this is going to happen. And then you realize it it, it always takes longer. Some yeah. things you can't control. Yeah, definitely. Um, and tell me about the culture at OfferUp and how you've been deliberate about creating it and how often you revisit it. So I spend a lot of time now on culture. If we go back to even a few years ago, probably, I, don't, I don't, it wasn't as important because we used to sit around one big table. Like it just, you know, it, it, you didn't. I didn't feel like I had to be as deliberate about it. Well, you've then. gotten big, and so now you yeah. don't. You, you can't have your finger on the pulse in the same way if you can't see everybody's yeah. eyeballs and kind of. I think a few things. So, for one, if you walk into OfferUp, it is a museum uh, of the product. So, you know, we moved into a new building, um, about a seventy thousand square foot building, a few years ago, and we 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 kind of gutted it and built it for how we wanted, and. We then split up the entire company into teams, and we furnished the entire office of 50-plus meeting rooms and all the open space from OfferUp. If you walk into, um, again, into OfferUp, aside from maybe some of the screens on the wall and laptops, everything is from OfferUp. That's super cool. When we post this on social media, um, I want you to post some of those pictures of the office. I've actually... Whenever I've met with people at OfferUp, I've always met at that little coffee shop, Dilettante. Oh, yeah. That's great. I've never been in the physical <laughs> office, so now I, now I have a reason by. to come by. Yeah. Go check it out. Um, and what about recruiting? Is there a common thread among uh, someone who you feel would be successful at OfferUp? Yeah. So, I mean, I was just kind of describing yeah. kind of— The culture. The, 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 yeah, the office and why is it like that? Because we want people to— you know, really use the product and understand what works well and what needs to be improved. And so that's, that's, you see that in the office. Uh, we also put on the walls, who's, who's uh, dog fooding or who's testing things before our customers do it. So there's kind of a, a wall of uh, shame, you know, mm. like I'm one of the top people that finds bugs and like that bothers yeah. me. I want more people to find more of bugs course. before our customers do. I'll go try to find some bugs yeah. for you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hopefully you don't find any because we've, <laughs> we've done it uh, in advance. But so that's one thing is just using the product. I think the other one is getting really clear on values. That was something I'd say a few years ago. We started with values and now we actually have operating principles as well. But, you know, we have three, which happen to be driven, neighborly, and adaptable. And that's what we look for to even, you know, become an employee of OfferUp. And it was one that I think at the time the exec team sat around. We said, you know, who are some people that are successful here? What are the attributes they have? And, you know, and so we looked around. And luckily it happened to be DNA too. So just, you know, driven, neighborly, uh, and adaptable. So that made it easy. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And, you know, when we think of driven, it's we want people that have this growth mindset, whether they're at OfferUp or somewhere else. Like, they're curious. They're, they're, yeah, they're curious. They, they're, they don't like the status quo. Like, they're hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, neighborly is we kind of have a no-jerk policy. Like, yeah. we're all in this together. I don't yeah. sell off Assholes in the sunset. Assholes need not apply. Yep. Yeah. I don't sell off in the sunset without anyone else. And then, again, adaptability. Like, in a startup, nothing as soon as you fix one thing, six months later, you got to refix. You know, yeah, six you days look at later. It. Six yeah. days later. Yeah. So, th- those I think are really important things. Now, the challenge is once you get deliberate about that, then you look th- you look at everyone through the company through that lens. And so, we started to get a lot more focused at that time. You know, you could have been an amazing person and, and really an amazing developer, but you were just a jerk. Mm. And we started asking people to kind of move on. I think before that, we were just lucky to have people. Right. Uh, then we started getting intentional about culture. Um, and then this year, we rolled out our operating principles. And those are more like, you know, once you're there, you know, it's, again, not just how you're performing, you know, but how, how are you showing up and how are you working with others? And so uh, we have a handful of those, but it's everything from, like, you know, being scrappy, um, um, pursuing excellence together, working with people, um, diving deep. I mean, these are things that I think matter at all levels of the business. Um, so we've gotten a lot more intentional with not only interviewing, so we brought that mm-hmm. into the interview process, and but how, also performance. How? I'm super curious about that because I'm trying to learn also. How do you measure for those things? So what we have done is, you know, we've created a whole list of ways to interview for those, and then we we split it up uh, within the interview loop. So maybe you'll add, maybe your, you know, your areas dive deep. Mm-hmm. You'll have like two or three questions you're going to ask that are kind of probing for those, and mm-hmm. then we put that into the recruiting tool. We're just trying to get a sense of kind of okay, how you know, how did these things show up? And it's clearly not an you know an absolute science, but we're just trying to get examples of okay, how do these people think? Mm-hmm. And then when we debrief. We hopefully have a pretty good spectrum of, you know, you know how the how do this. And who has the ultimate decision making power? Is it the hiring manager? Is it based on kind of the group consensus? Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, it is the hiring manager. Um, but I think clearly we, we, you know, we really look for everyone's feedback. So when we're debriefing, we can always change our vote. Mm. Uh, so we usually do like a one to four. One is like, hell no, you you hire them, I'm going to quit. A four is like, they're they're, they're amazing. So mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that. I've seen I've been in a, quite a few debriefs and I think the hiring manager in general, you know, is hopefully has a good 360 on you know, what they're thinking about there. Yeah. Well, it's a constant challenge. And as you know, in this kind of war on talent and with especially with engineering, with Facebook and all these other companies coming here to build out engineering teams, you got to be as competitive as you possibly can. Um, and I, I think that the CEOs who engage um, significantly in culture and in recruiting are the ones who are winning and the ones that we feel like um, psyched to partner with because they're, they're yeah. ready to close candidates. They No one's too kind of low level for them to get in on it. I spend three days a week recruiting. Oh, that's great. Uh, I mean, that's I, huge. I, a lot, I of, a lot of CEOs candidates. say that they do, and no. then we're like, hey, can you call this guy? He's got two other offers, and they're like, they don't do uh, it. I, like, I meet with candidates on the weekend over coffee. Oh, I, that's I, great. I, I, I think the most important thing right now is team, 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 especially. Yeah. And, 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 and to your point, I've never seen a job market like this. So It's crazy, yeah. You need to not only you, you not only sell candidates, but you got to make sure it's the right culture. Yeah. Well, I'm super psyched to have you on the podcast. I've been told, because I don't know you well, that you walk the walk and talk the talk and you're near the real deal. And it's been super fun. But I have a final, final question for you, which I ask everyone, which is ultimately what fuels you? I, I like, you know, I think to ask uh, the questions on why and like, I just like to, I like the, the puzzles. Like I, li- I like the Legos. I like the hard, hard problems. And I, and I think, you know, there's plenty of times that are extremely hard, but I think looking back, you're like, oh, man, you know, I persevered and o- overcame that. So if there's ever a day where, you know, OfferUp becomes, you know, a massive company and it's just, I'll just grow revenue of 10% this year, I, it's probably not for me. Like, I, I need the hard things to, you know, to solve. And I think that's what gets me excited in, in the morning. Yeah. Well, hopefully you feel that you already are a huge success because it's incredibly impressive what you are building, what you have already done. And it's incredible. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Of course. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. 
Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.